Thou mayable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Most people recoil at the thought of being completely alone. As a dad of six kids, I share solitude once in a while, but I don't want to be left alone forever. In our house, sometimes our little ones will send them upstairs, and if nobody is up there, they'll say, don't send me up alone, you've got to come with me. On the other end of life's spectrum, I've heard people talk about their fear of being alone in their final hours. I attended uh, the funeral of, of Chris Allen's mother yesterday, Donna Ringley, and the priest made a point of, of saying that she was blessed to be surrounded by family in her final hours. And that is a great blessing, but not everybody experiences that. But the message of Christianity and the message of Christmas calms our fears if we believe this. In Christ, God is with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. At the beginning of our gospel reading, we find Joseph in a, in a place of fear, confusion, bitter disappointment. Mary is betrothed to Joseph, the text says, and that means that they were legally pledged to one another. They were legally engaged. They would have signed documents pledging their loyalty to one another. There probably would have been gifts exchanged between the families. The betrothal period, this period of legal engagement lasted about a year. And during that time, they would have, for the most part, stayed separate from one another. Mary staying with her parents. Joseph working, saving money, getting the house ready, imagining what life is going to be like with his new bride. But then he gets the devastating news. She's pregnant. And Matthew makes the point that she was found to be with child before they had come together. The only reasonable explanation, the only rational explanation in Joseph's mind is that Mary cheated on me. And that means Mary is an adulterer. And that means Joseph has to divorce her. We learn something about the character of Joseph when it says that he was a just man and not wanting to put her to shame, he divorced her quietly. But still, you can imagine Joseph tossing and turning at night over and over again, thinking about how could Mary have done this to me? The pain of betrayal, of broken promises of broken relationships. And we've all been there, haven't we? That's a deep and difficult pain. Well, finally, Joseph falls asleep. Relief comes. But as he sleeps, something incredible happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in 
a dream. And the angel explained to Joseph how this all happened, how Mary conceived. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, there have been other miraculous births in the history of Israel. We think of Abraham's wife, Sarah, giving birth. Ninety-nine years old. But this is the first and the last virgin birth. We could say maybe technically it's the virgin conception of Jesus. This marks Jesus as unique. God has done a creative miracle here. It marks him as unique. Yes, he is fully man, but he's more than a man. He is from God and he is fully God. Marks Jesus as unique, the God man. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the miraculous virgin birth is is a favorite target of skeptics. And they'll say things like this is just impossible to believe. It's a violation of all laws of nature. And of course, it is a miracle. And the God of the Bible is a God of miracles, a God of the supernatural. So that's part of the package when you believe in the God of the Bible. You believe that God has done these things and God can do these things. I don't think it's quite accurate or helpful to talk about miracles as a violation, though, of the laws of nature. God is the one who created these laws in the first place. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of this world. A simple illustration, an imperfect example. But if I were to ask you to to drop a pencil on the floor, that would demonstrate the law of gravity. But if I asked you to drop that pencil and then I snatched it before it hit the ground, it's not as if I would be violating the law of gravity. No, I would have I would intervene and there would be a purpose, a reason why I grabbed that pencil before it hit the ground. Again, it's a simple example, not perfect, but it makes the point that God's miracles are not necessarily or we shouldn't think of it as simply breaking the laws of nature. He is the lawgiver and he can intervene. According to his own plans and purposes, and that's what's going on here, this miraculous intervention this great miracle. The angel announces it to Joseph and then gives Joseph some instructions. You shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, how does Joseph respond to this incredible word of the Lord that was coming through the angel? He obeys. He does what he's told. He responds to the call of God on his life. As confusing as it is, as difficult as it is to grasp, he doesn't have a complete picture of all that this means. But he obeys. You see, Joseph had the strength to do what God called him to do because he realized God was with him. God was in this set of unbelievable circumstances. And God is with this child and in this child that Mary is bearing in a unique way. Joseph's obedience would not be easy. You can imagine him thinking, 
I'm going to do this, but what will other people think? What will other people say? They lived in a village culture. They lived in a shame and honor culture. A cloud of suspicion would likely hang over this family. And you can imagine whispers in the village when Jesus passed by about his illegitimacy and about this story of an angel. But Joseph obeyed the plan of God for his life in spite of the difficulty and challenge, knowing that God was with him. Now, there's a truth for us in this, isn't there? When we know God is with us, it gives us the spiritual strength and courage to do what God has called us to do. It gives us the strength to obey him. You can see this all throughout the history of the Bible, of the great men and women of faith, from Abraham to Moses to David and here to Joseph, to the apostles, when they knew that God was with them. It empowered them and strengthened them to do what God had called them to do. It's in the Bible, it's in the stories, it's in the biographies of great men and women of the past. I was reading something that happened to Martin Luther King Jr. when he began to take over leadership in the civil rights movement in the South. And he had been released from the Montgomery City Jail. And he gets home to his wife and his young child. I think he had just one child at the time. And a call came after midnight. You need to get out of town or we're going to blow your brains out and we're going to blow up your house. This was when Martin Luther King Jr. was just starting out. And he talks about in, in his sermons that this was the pivotal experience of his life, of his ministry, of his call. And he went to the kitchen and he sat down at the table over a cup of coffee and he began to pray and say, God, I need to know if you're with me in this. I'm trying to do what I think is the right thing, but I need to know you and I need to know that you're with me. And a, a response came. He says there was this inner voice. A prayer that said, stand up, Martin, stand up, stand up for righteousness and justice and truth. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. See, Matthew starts with Emmanuel, God is with us. And then at the Great Commission, it ends with, and I am with you always. But that's what gives disciples the strength to do. What God calls us to do. The courage to obey. What God calls us to obey. In His Word. In a culture that is ignoring His Word. Or mocking or ridiculing. What gives us the courage to stand up and do what God has called us to do. Is, is knowing that in Christ, God is with me. His personal presence with us in Jesus. What is God calling you to do? That is difficult. What is God calling you to do? That is confusing. How is God calling you to walk through dark and difficult circumstances in your life? Your calling as a parent, as a grandparent, as a caretaker, as a neighbor, as a friend. Your calling as a wife or a husband or a single person. Your calling as a student. 
How is God calling you to obey Him in your life right now? The strength to do it, the strength to persevere, is turning to God and trusting this promise that He is with me in Jesus. Take some time this Christmas season to to be alone with the Lord. Take some time to say to the Lord, I need to know that you are with me. I need the strength that comes from your presence, Emmanuel, God with me. Take some time this busy season. I mean, we're running from pillar to post, aren't we? Can you carve out some time to seek the presence of the Lord? To strengthen you in your calling where you're at in your life. It's not just, though, that God is with me personally. He is God with us. God is calling a people with whom he will dwell. So Jesus, the angel says, will be the savior of his people from their sins. From their sins. In order for a holy God to dwell with his people, God has to save them from their sins. We sing about the holiness of God this morning. How he is holy, 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 immortal one. And we sing in light of that, have mercy upon me, O God, because I am not holy. See, in order for God to dwell with his people, he must cleanse them and forgive them of their sins. And this is what God has done in this baby. Sin creates a chasm between God and us. And Jesus is the bridge. I heard about a painting by an artist named Jorge de la Tour. Do you know this painting? Do you know this artist? Jorge de la Tour. But the painting hangs in the Louvre. And it's called The Carpenters. Uh, It's called uh, Joseph the Carpenter. And it depicts Joseph working on a piece of wood and Jesus is there next to him. Jesus is about maybe six or seven years old in this picture and he's holding a candle. And the central image of the picture is the light. It's very bright. It's luminous. It it almost seems to be true light that's emanating from the picture. And it's, it's emanating from Jesus and through his hand as he holds this candle. And as Jesus looks down on what his father is working on, which is this piece of wood, which is in the shape of a cross. And it's the way of the artist conveying this thought that this is why this child came. And this is how the light of God's salvation shines in the world through the cross of Jesus. Jesus Yahshua means the Lord saves and he's come to save his people from their sins. You see, it's at the cross that that God has dealt with the penalty of our sins in his justice and in his holiness. God at the cross satisfies his just wrath against sin so that our relationship with God is changed. We're no longer at odds with God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're friends of God and we're More than that, we're sons and daughters of God brought into the family of God through the cross of Jesus. Our position changes. Our relationship changes because of the 
cross. And our hearts change because at the cross, God's love for sinners is revealed. This is love. God sent His Son into the world as a sacrifice for our sin. God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. So the cross changes our heart because of the divine love displayed there. And so we're no longer prodigals running away from God. We're sons and daughters coming home to a loving Father. Aren't you thankful for the work of the cross? The love of God displayed there. So in Christ, God saves us from our sin and He gathers a people with whom He can dwell. This holy God dwelling with those who have sinned against Him. So that all people throughout the world, all those in Christ, will know Him as God with us and will give Him glory and praise now and for eternity. This has been the plan of the, of the triune God from, from eternity. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, we have been chosen in Christ. This is the plan for God to gather a people for Himself through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And God has been gathering this people and weaving this plan and writing this story for centuries. That's why Matthew can quote the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah that goes back to the 7th century. Isaiah gave this prophecy to King Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, as I've said before in my preaching and in my teaching, in the Old Testament, these prophecies have a couple of reference points. There is a near-term fulfillment. There is a present day fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or a fulfillment that happened shortly after the prophetic utterance. I don't know exactly how this prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's time. You know, he talks about kings and judgments and and then this baby to be born that will be a sign that God is with us. I have a theory about how this was fulfilled, but I don't have time to go into the theory. But if you want to talk to me about it, I read a lot of scholarship on it this week and you know there's dozens of theories. That's an exaggeration. There's probably three or four prominent theories. But I have my favorite. I don't know exactly how it was fulfilled. But it was. There was a baby or babies perhaps that were born maybe under the name Emmanuel that was giving a sign of hope that God was with the people of Israel. But the ultimate fulfillment of this is with Jesus Christ. Because He is God with us. Because He is the Son of God. You see, the sovereign God has been working out this plan to gather a people for Himself who will know Him as Emmanuel, God with us. And we're part of that plan. Joseph was part of that plan in a unique way, but all of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're part of this plan and we're part of this people. Thanks be to God and His Grace and mercy. This is the story that God has been writing throughout history. We're part of this story, and that gives us hope. There's a writer and a cultural critic named Andrew Del Banco. He wrote a book on hope. He wrote a book about 
how Americans think about hope and where they put their hope. He divided it into three stages. He said, first, Americans put their hope in God. Then they put their hope in the nation. And now they're putting their hope in themselves. This is somebody who's not a Christian, but he's got some keen insight on where our culture is today. He is very good at diagnosing the problems of American culture today. And he wrote this in his book on hope. He, he, he laments that Americans don't have a coherent story of their life and of history. And because we don't have a, a coherent story, we don't know what we're doing and we don't know where the story is heading. We don't have a lot of hope. And he says we need, quote, to overcome the suspicion that all of our getting and our spending amounts to nothing more than just fidgeting while we wait to die. We need to imagine some end of life that transcends our tiny allotment of days and hours. He diagnoses the problem. I don't know if he gives a solution, but the solution is Christ. Emmanuel. God with us. Christ crucified and risen for you. Christ who will come again. That's the story you and I are part of. That's the story that gives our life ultimate meaning and hope. This Christmas season, cling to that hope. Bear witness to that hope in your words and in your life and in our worship together. Amen.